down, finding their seat, getting settled, all of those things. Uh, we'll get ready in just a minute. The announcements are to remind everybody that the men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday morning, and I've been uh, moving slowly forward in a study related to uh, what the Bible teaches about biblical manhood. Uh, a lot of what I have to say is great for grandfathers, but it's really good for fathers and young men to hear, and they tend to not show up on Saturday morning. So we need to invite some of these younger guys who especially are fathers and rearing children to be a part of this. Um, also, the men's camp out October 14th and 15th. Pray that it will not rain. This is the rainiest year I can remember in Houston. And, um, and then the uh, deacons meeting is also this coming Saturday morning at um, 9 o'clock. So those are the main, main announcements. I think the conference went well. I want to again thank everyone who participated and volunteered. Uh, just did a tremendous job. Got lots of uh, good compliments from a lot of different people who were here. And so we made... Uh, again, a very, very good impression. Uh, a lot of folks that came from the radio announcement as well as from the Act America group that meets here uh, once a month. Uh, tonight, he's not here, but we're going to have a visitor uh, Thursday night. I met with this guy at lunch yesterday. His name is David Ibrahim. His van broke down today, and he had to have some work done on it. He is a third-generation Christian Pakistani who escaped just ahead of the executioner's out of uh, Pakistan in 2003. took another three years for his family to get here. Uh, one of the board members on Dean Bible Ministries heard him speak at a uh, church camp in Virginia uh, about a month or so ago, and he happened to be in Houston, and, and we got together. But he's written a book called Mirage, the, the Love Language of Islam. Now, y'all are so sheltered. One of the major, major tools that Christian churches have been using for the last 15 years is that you can't counsel or encourage anybody unless you know their love language. Okay, so that's just Christian garbage. But that's the sarcasm in the title is that the fact that you have love in Islam is a mirage. There's no love there. So anyhow, he's uh, he's in town, and he was going to come tonight just to just to be here in Bible class, but he'll be here Thursday night. So uh, if you see a scruffy-looking guy in a big, little Middle Eastern, and it, with a big beard, don't assume it's a terrorist. Okay, <laughs> just warning you now, uh, and uh, we'll we'll see if we have some future uh, relationships with him. Okay, um, I think that's just about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. 
for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord before we begin our study, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to in time of need. We know that you sustain us. We know that you provide for us. We know that you are the only one who knows all of the issues in each one of our lives, and you, are, you have tailored our spiritual life for each one of us. Father, we know that there are people in this congregation and those who are listening that are facing serious situations in their lives, and they are work, struggling, holding on to the throne of grace every single day, uh, living one day at a time, and maybe the problem's financial, maybe the problem has to do with their marriage or family, maybe the problem has to do with their work, um, health, any number of factors can put people in, under tremendous adversity. And the only option is to trust in you, to learn to trust in you. And these tests are designed to test our faith, the doctrine that we know, that we may apply it, and that we may, be, may grow spiritually and be strengthened. And, Father, we pray for each one of these who are uh, facing these challenges that you would strengthen and encourage them uh, through your word tonight and through uh, each time we study, the, study your word. And we pray that you would encourage us. We also pray for Jim Myers. We pray for him and his uh, a new semester and his strength and his stamina uh, with his uh, very busy schedule and for his health. And we pray for us that we might continue to glorify you in all that we say and do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are still in First Samuel dealing with this tremendously important issue related to spiritual warfare, demon possession, demon influence, and this very unusual situation. This is unique in Scripture, what's happening with Saul. And so I want to, we've been going through the doctrine in the past few weeks, and tonight we're going to wrap it up looking at uh, the question of can Christians be demon-possessed. That's not going to take the whole time. I want to come back and then talk some about what in the world is going on here with this demon and Saul and the uh, early use of so-called music therapy, okay? So we have to analyze that just a little bit because there's this big trend in psychotherapy today. The new trend is, is the use of music in therapy, so I want to address that just a little bit. All right. We're in First Samuel sixteen fourteen. Key verse to understand the dynamic that's going on here. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The contrast is the spirit of the Lord has come upon David, who is the newly anointed king, but he is not the installed, inaugurated king yet. He is just the anointed king to replace Saul eventually. He is not the king until Saul uh, is taken to be with the Lord at the end of 1 Samuel. So the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and an evil spirit, it's not just a distressing spirit, uh, that may be translated that way because that's sort of the effect of this evil spirit. But the word there, as we see in the lower left, is ra, which is a word, Hebrew word meaning bad or evil, indicates this is a demon that is troubling him, somewhat of a pusillanimous term for what is going on here. It has the idea uh, in the bottom right, this word ba'at, 
and it has the idea of be taken overtaken by sudden terror, to be absolutely terrified, uh, come under extreme anxiety. It would involve anxiety, fear, uh, paranoia that would uh, virtually incapacitate somebody. So we have to understand how this is taking place, but that will come at the end of the lesson. We looked in the previous two lessons at the angelic rebellion as the foundation for this, that there are angels who followed Satan, and there are four different categories of fallen angels, one of whom are identified as demons, and these demons are active in the world today. There's two categories that we covered under point five and point six, demon influence, very different from demon uh, possession. Demon influence is where a demon is influencing human beings, believer or unbeliever. There's no distinction. This comes through the thought. The demon is uh, influences through the thinking of the world, the philosophies of the world, the religions of the world, the, the peer pressure of the world, the opinions of your parents and your peers and your professors and uh, politicians that that have ideas that are not biblical. Now, what does it mean to be not biblical? I've talked to Christians, pastors, some pastors, some doctrinal pastors, some people who've sat under solid doctrinal teaching for 30, 40, 50 years, and they think that if something is biblical, it's because it's consistent with the Bible. A lot of human good is consistent with the Bible. Just because it's consistent with the Bible does not ever make it biblical. What makes it biblical is if it is derived from the Bible, and it can be shown to to have developed from the text of Scripture. That's what it means to think biblically, is according to what the Bible teaches, not just to have a system of morality. There are a lot of unbelievers who have systems of morality. There are a lot of unbelievers who understand certain establishment principles related to authority, related to nationalism, related to marriage and family. But it may be just a a part of their puzzle. Okay, we remember the illustration I've used of a jigsaw puzzle? You can have 20 pieces in one jigsaw puzzle that are identical to pieces in another jigsaw puzzle. And those pieces in their jigsaw puzzle, let's say it's a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or even a Muslim, those pieces may look identical, but it's the context that defines what the pieces are. It's not the individual pieces. So when you hear uh, certain non-Christians talking about the importance of family, what they mean by family isn't what you and I should be talking about. We get our ideas of family directly from the text of Scripture, not from... Uh, empirical data, not from sociology, not from uh, the ideas of another religion that may not be 100% kosher, shall we say. Okay? So demon influences are these ideas. That's why you have to develop discernment to be able to tell the difference using the, the Bible as a tool for understanding and discerning the difference between truth and error because Satan goes around like an angel of light. His ministers are ministers of righteousness. They, they cloak themselves. He is the master counterfeiter. So we have to understand how to tell the difference between counterfeit truth and true truth. That's demon influence. Then we have demon possession. Went through the details, the exegetical details, the linguistic studies last week. This is when a demon, an immaterial being, takes up 
residence inside the body of a an unbeliever, not a, never a believer, only an unbeliever, takes up residence inside the body of an unbeliever and can control their physical actions. He doesn't blot out their soul, though. So they still, even though it may be somewhat uh, covered up, that individual is still real, that soul is still in control in some level and can still exercise positive volition so that the only solution a demon a possession is for that person to hear the gospel and to respond by trusting in Christ. That's the only option today. There were different options as we saw at the time of Christ. He could cast out a demon. He never exercised a demon. That's exorkizo, the Greek word for exorcism, is a word that is only used of the magicians and uh, the sorcerers the others that were trying to do it through various uh, use of smells and bells and incantations and things like that. But demon influence is very real. That was the seventh point. We saw various passages that talk about how even believers can come under serious demon influence. You can come under serious demon influence through becoming anti-Semitic. You can come under serious demon influence by being anti-Zionistic. You can come under serious demon influence by subscribing to the various theories of humanistic psychology. And that's very dangerous, and that has uh, captured the evangelical church. There was an article on townhome.com a couple of weeks ago called The Death of Evangelicalism. You can search it on the Internet on townhall.com, and it was absolutely excellent. And this writer laid the, the beginning of the... Uh, of the suicide attempt of the of the evangelical church at their acceptance of humanistic psychology in the seminaries back in the 70s and 80s, and I couldn't agree with him more. The next step in committing suicide was the acceptance of contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian worship, because music is a language. And it is not a biblical, it, it may not be a consistent with a biblical or the, theistic worldview. And so it can communicate a message that is 180 degrees contrary to the words that you put with that music. And then you're giving a mixed message. We've studied that. You can go back to the Revela- Revelation series I taught seven or eight years ago, going through that, as well as the 2013 uh, series that Scott Annual taught at the Chafer Conference in 2013, or read his book, Worship and Music. Very, very good. But so many Christians, solid Christian teachers in other areas, such as Chuck Swindoll, I read this quote from him last week, base their doctrine of demonology not on exegesis in the scripture, but on personal experience. And this has happened time and time again. So what I want to do now is address this question of can a Christian be demon-possessed? And how do we understand that? From whence do we get our information? Always we start with the Bible. Now, I want to correct something that I've... It's in the book on spiritual warfare, and I've taught this many times, but we always have to come back to it. There is a traditional argument against the demon possession of a Christian. And it goes something like this. The major premise is that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. We all believe that. There's, that, that is a true statement. 
The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. We'll look at the verses in just a minute. The minor premise is that a demon and the Holy Spirit cannot be in the same place, the same location. Now, that sounds good, but it's fallacious because, as is often pointed out, if you go to Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, there is a convocation of the sons of God, which includes Satan and the fallen angels, and they come before the throne of God in heaven. You see the same thing in the passage we studied a couple of weeks ago in 1 Kings 22, that, there, that Micah, or Micaiah sees this, this vision of the throne room of God, and the sons of God are gathered before God, and he asks for a deceiving spirit to go forth to deceive Ahab. So you have the presence of evil angels in the throne room of God. So they're in the same location as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the, the problem is this minor premise. The conclusion is that therefore a Christian cannot have both a demon and the Holy Spirit in the same place. It's not that this is not generally true, but it's not specifically true. We have to get down to the specifics of what the Scripture says. So this is a poorly constructed argument. The problem isn't with the conclusion that a Christian can't be demon-possessed. It's that the argument to get there is poorly poorly constructed. So we have to understand what the text actually teaches. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is true for every single believer from the instant we trust in Christ as Savior. I've seen on the internet any number of listings of all the different things that Christ, uh, that God does for us at the instant of salvation. I've seen Lewis Berry Chafer's 32 things revised to 34 things, revised to 40 things. I've seen others list 88 things, some list 100 things, some list 150 things. If you look at the way Lewis Berry Chafer listed them in his systematic theology, many of them said something like the, the, the seven things God the Holy Spirit does for you, and then it lists those seven things as subpoints. Other people come along and break them out as main points. It just depends on how you uh, you organize the things, but they're basically all the same, giving the same list. They just enumerate them different and break the points out differently, and that's why I have never tried to come up with a, with a fixed number on that. There are uh, an innumerable number of things that were done for every believer at the instant we believed in Christ. We are told in Ephesians 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I can't count those. It's beyond my number, num, numerical ability, and you all know how, how great that is. So we're all indwelled by God the Holy Spirit from the instant of salvation. This never happens before in, in history. It's never happened. Not one single Old Testament hero was indwelt by the Holy Spirit like the church-age believer is. They're endued or empowered by the Spirit for specific leadership roles, and we studied that. The judges, Moses, uh, the those who uh, built the furniture in the temple or, or the tabernacle. Uh, that's, but it's all empowerment for specific roles. It's not for the spiritual life. It's not creating a dwelling place for the Shekinah, the dwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ in every believer. So the two key verses here are 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know? Paul says that a lot. 
Do you not know? They're plural used, but all through 1 Corinthians 3, the plural used talk about the whole congregation. But he's talking in the plurality, just like I'd say, um, don't you want to be here on Saturday morning for the men's prayer breakfast? Now, when I say that, you know that I'm not talking to everyone here. I'm just talking to the men that are here. So we understand context as to what the you means, but I'm talking to every, even though I'm using a plural y'all, don't y'all want to be here for the men's prayer breakfast? I'm speaking to each individual male that's in the room. Okay, that's how language works. When Paul says, do y'all, talking to the Corinthians, do y'all not know he's talking to the group, so he uses a plural, but he means every individual in in that congregation. The reason I say that is because there are some people who use this verse to say that that the church, the body, is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, not the individual. But that's a misunderstanding, misexegesis of this passage, the 619 passage. Romans, I think it's Romans 8, 9, or 10, uh, makes the same point that the if the Holy Paul says, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, speaking about uh, the fact, assuming that the Spirit of God would dwell in every believer. So this is, this is clear that this is uh, a doctrine for every single believer from the instant of salvation. But the word that's translated temple here is the important word. Uh, I have two different words that are Greek words in the bottom panel that are used and translated temple. The first is the Greek word naos. The second is the Greek word heron. The Greek word naos refers to the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. It is the most sanctified location. This is where the Shekinah dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament. The word heros is a much broader term. This includes the outer, the, the courtyard, the courtyard where the laver and the um, uh, brazen altar were located. It goes out to the courtyard of the women and even the courtyard of the Gentiles. So it would talk about the entire uh, temple complex, the outer courtyards, and the external grounds. So here, I've, I've shown the difference. The naos refer to the holy of holies, which is inside the holy place where, where the presence of God dwelt. Everything else is the heros, the outer, outer temple. So that's a depiction of the uh, Herod's temple. Then here's another schematic. We have the Holy of Holies here, and, and, and that's the Naos. Just referred to the holy place, the Holy of Holies specifically, but it was also used as holy place. That's, you couldn't go in there unless you were cleansed as a priest at all. You couldn't even go in to do the in, altar of incense or, the, or change the bread or any of those things. Only the priest who's sanctified can go in there. Heros is the outer temple. We see the same thing here with the tabernacle. This would be the naos, and then the outer areas would all be the heros. So 1 Corinthians 3.16, you as an individual believer, you are the place where this, this dwelling of the Holy Spirit created for God the Son, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's created. It is special. It's not just that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It's the significance of that dwelling making you a naos temple, not a heros temple. 
And in a Naos temple, nothing unsanctified can enter. Okay, that's what defines and clarifies that particular argument. So both of these verses emphasize the fact that it is a Naos temple. Therefore, nothing, no one unclean uh, can go in. Nothing evil can go into that especially sanctified area. That is relates to our positional sanctification. So we can wrap it up by refining the argument this way. The major premise is this. Every believer is a set-apart sanctuary by the Holy Spirit for the indwelling Jesus Christ. We are a naos sanctuary. The minor premise is that unsanctified creatures, including demons, cannot enter into this kind of set-apart sanctuary. It makes it, it's very distinct, that word temple is very important. So the conclusion is that demons cannot enter into the set-apart sanctuaries of the believer's body. Our body has been set apart to God as a naos temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why John can say in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So that is the theological argument as it's derived from the text of Scripture. Now we have another place in the Gospels where Jesus uses an illustration that is uh, very similar, talking about, um, it uses this illustration really in relation to Israel and casting out demons. He said this is a situation in Matthew 12 when there's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, And he illustrates this because the Pharisees have said, well, you're casting out those demons by the power of Beelzebul, which is another title for Satan. Jesus said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what we saw there is that this means doesn't mean that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated or that it started or any of that. What it means is that it's the kingdom of God is being offered and it's present in the person of the king, who is offering the kingdom. Now, the other night at the Israel conference, Andy Woods gave an excellent uh, presentation on uh, why Christians support Israel. He had copies of his new book on the kingdom of God that were here, and that, that is an excellent book and goes through all these different issues. And if you want to get a, a good book detailing, going through all the different passages, how the kingdom of God is used, then you need to do that. You may not realize it, but at the core of progressive politics, for those of you who are political junkies, at the core of of, um, progressive politics is the idea that was borrowed from Christianity, from liberal Christianity at the end of the 19th century, because they were post-millennial, that we're going to be better and better in every way. And that they, uh, they co-opted the term kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God was being manifest through progressive political theory. And we're going to make everything better and better and better. Of course, that was uh, slaughtered on the fields of Flanders in World War I. But this idea of the kingdom, this perverted, heretical idea of the kingdom is at the very core of liberal progressive politics and they've secularized it and destroyed it. So that's also part of the uh, abuse of that whole term. So Jesus says, 
that this is evidence that he's cast out a demon, Ekbalo, cast out a demon, then the kingdom of God is present among them in the person of the king. Then he gives an illustration. He says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder, uh, plunder his house. And so he's using this illustration that if you've got a thief coming into your house and he gets to you before you get to your 45, then he ties you up. Then only after he has tied you up can he then plunder the house. So he applies that general illustration. In verse 43, he says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes waterless places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it unoccupied because he was, he was taken out. He was bound and removed. He comes back, finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Moral, ethical cleansing or cleaning of the house. Spring cleaning. This is what the Pharisees were doing in legalism. They were just doing spring cleaning. Okay? Then the, the demon comes back and says, oh, they've cleaned up their life. And goes and gets all his buddies. And they come back and, and, um, and the whole gang takes up residence there and they live there because it hasn't been sanctified. It's only been morally cleansed. And that's the point of that illustration. There, only if there's true spiritual sanctification that takes place is he going to be prevented from coming back. We've looked at 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus' high priestly prayer, I think, is an extremely strong argument against demon possession. Jesus prays the night before he goes to the cross for the church. That's why it's called this high priestly prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, not Matthew 5 or 6. This is the Lord's Prayer here. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying to God, the Father. And he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. The world is Satan's cosmic thinking. That's demon influence. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And both places, one place it's translated out of, the other it's translated from, is the Greek preposition ek, which indicates severance or separation. That's the grammatical explanation. So he's, he's not going to separate us from the world, but he is praying that we should be kept separated from the evil one. Now, Jesus, who's our high priest, who is always in fellowship and has perfect harmony with the Father, knows how to pray and gets his prayers answered. And so if Jesus is praying that God's going to keep us from the evil one, then guess what? We're going to be kept from the evil one. That's going to keep us from um, any kind of demon possession. The grammatical explanation here indicates severance or separation. So whatever else the Lord intended by saying this, this would certainly exclude at the minimum the invasion of a believer's body by unholy demons. Since we know that the Father has heard and is fulfilling Christ's request, this must at least include protection for all believers, obedient and disobedient, from demon possession. Okay? 
He's praying for the body of Christ. At any moment, we, we can be out of fellowship. That does not expose us to demon possession. God is the one who is always protecting us. Another verse, 1 John five eighteen and 19, another great promise. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Again, wicked one is a reference to Satan or the demons, and he can't touch the believer. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is another way. This is John taking what Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer and writing it in his own words. Paul does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3.3. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you. He doesn't say he might on occasion on the condition that you're in fellowship, on the condition that you haven't done certain sins, he says he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Our protection is totally on the basis of the power of God and our position in Christ and the fact that we are a sanctified temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And last but not least, we have the promise in Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, that God's power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, what's left out of the word everything? Anything? No, it's er- everything is everything. The point of this is that the epistles in the New Testament, Romans to Jude, are written to church-age believers to teach us how to handle everything we're going to face pertaining to the spiritual life of the church-age believer. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. That's what 2 Peter 1.3 emphasizes. The Scripture is sufficient because God's given us everything. Now, where between Romans and uh, Jude do you find anything about demon possession at all? Not one place. The silence is thundering. Okay, it is so obvious. There's not only no mention of demon possession, there's no mention of a solution to demon possession. You don't have anybody casting out any demons or anything from from Romans to Jude. It's not mentioned at all. So the major premise is the Word of God is sufficient. The minor premise is that nowhere in the epistles addressed to church-age believer is there a mention of a problem of demon possession or the solution to demon possession. Therefore, the conclusion is demon possession is not an issue for the church-age believer. If it was, it would be mentioned. Now, some people are going to say, well, it's in the Gospels. But the Gospels are a different dispensation. The Gospels are the period of the law and dealing with a specifically intense period under the age of Israel, the dispensation of the messianic offer of the kingdom. And it happens only also in the... Uh, in Acts, and only during the transition period at the beginning of the church age when the gospels, I mean, when the apostles are going out and proclaiming the gospel. So that makes it pretty clear from scripture that this is not a problem for church age believers. And yet, there's a whole segment of Christians who have been influenced by the theology of third world countries, the mysticism, animism, spiritism that comes out of these third world countries and missionaries uh, become deceived by this. And this is what happened 
his, uh, at one event is you had a great professor at Dallas Seminary near Miralunger who wrote his doctoral dissertation on biblical demonology, concluding that demons could not be demon-possessed. I mean, Christians could not be demon-possessed. Impossible for Christians to be demon-possessed. And then he got a lot of pushback from missionaries who gave all their personal testimonies based on experience, not exegesis, not the Word of God, and they said, ah, but we know all these people who had made a, they made professions of faith, etc., etc. And then they were demon-possessed. Well, how do you know it was demon-possession and not something else? How do you know it wasn't psychosis? How do you know it wasn't neurosis? How do you know it wasn't some sort of other problem? How do you know it was actually demon-possession? You don't because you're a finite being and you can't see into the realm of the in, in, invisible. You have to rely on the Word of God. So Unger succumbed to the pressure and changed his view and wrote another book called Demons in the World Today and What Satan Can Do to Christians and took the positions that Christians could be demon-possessed. And everybody in Bible churches, including Chuck Swindoll and a number of other people, have been confused ever since because they have lost the ability to exegete the text and they are no longer standing on the Word of God and the Word of God alone, but they are standing on the Word of God plus psychology, the Word of God plus sociology, the Word of God plus experience to tell them uh, what is really going on. And as Charles Ryrie said many, many times, you are not following the Scripture if you are interpreting the Scripture from your experience. You have to interpret your experience from the Word of God. The Word of God tells you how to understand your experience. You may have had some kind of experience. You heard a spirit talk to you in the night. You had an angel appear to you in your dreams. Uh, I can't question. You can't question somebody else's experience. You can't say, well, you didn't experience that. They'll just say, yes, I did. How can you say I didn't experience it? The issue is you didn't interpret it correctly because you interpret it on the basis of your experience and not on the basis of what the Word of God says. So once you get the Word of God into your soul, then you can hear or even experience these things go, boy, it sure seemed real, but that devil, he is the great deceiver, and I've been deceived, and I'm going to interpret this according to the Word of God. And remember what Deuteronomy 13 says? That you're going to have dreamers of dreams and false prophets who come along and even work miracles. But God said, these are given to test you to see if you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not run after these deceivers and these deceptions. It doesn't matter how real it seems to you, you're going to be tested to see if the Word of God is more real to you than your feelings and then your experience and everything else. And this is really comes to play when you come under some really serious adversity in life. And I've seen so many Christians who, who fade out and they run to all kinds of different solutions because the trend of our sin nature is to say, I don't want God's solution. I want to solve it myself. And we're antagonistic to the solution that God says because that's the trend of our sin nature. Now, that is a nice intro bringing us back to Saul, who is just as carnal. He is uber-carnal. He is hyper-carnal. He has been in rebellion against God, and that rebellion against God has been identified by the prophet Samuel as being equivalent to idolatry and to the sin of divination. 
So it is equivalent to already being involved and being under heavy demonic influence, okay? So that's who Saul is. He's under this heavy demonic influence. And so we come to this situation where where he is just, uh, he is he is under extreme paranoia and extreme fear that's debilitating, that's shutting him down. And, and this may also include depression. And we see across the board today in Christianity and in our world, people who are struggling with all sorts of psychological problems, emotional problems, they're real problems. They're, they, they're, they come under extreme depression, they come under fear, they come under anxiety, they come under all kinds of things. And the knee-jerk reaction from our culture is, let's go to the doctor and get some medication. And, and the medication is going to do something. It's going to do some good things. It's going to do a lot of bad things, I think. There are a lot of books out on it. You can go to various sources and, and search on these things on the Internet. Uh, books I've read, Toxic Psychology, several others that are out there. Every time I talk about this, I always get a lot of uh, upset email because people are relying on whatever drug they're taking in order to solve their problem. But what we see here is a very interesting dynamic. So I'm going to start off by saying, asking the question here, can music deliver a person from demonic oppression? Interesting question. What in the world is going on here? We have to understand the mechanics of the situation. Saul is, first of all, has made negative volition choices again and again and again for years. He is spiraling out of control spiritually because he is living on the power of his sin nature. He is independent from God, and he is uh, has rejected God. He is in rebellion and been under full-blown extreme demon influence for a very long time. This isn't a believer who's just been uh, on negative volition rejecting God for a few days or a few weeks or something like that. This is somebody who, first of all, is the anointed leader of Israel in a special position in the history of the world. He's not John Doe Christian. Very, very different. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him, but he's not demon-possessed either. That's not the issue here. And the solution is unusual. There's not another place in the Scripture that has anything like this. So when it's recognized that he's under this uh, oppression from this demon that's outside of him. That's very important. That's what the prepositions tell us. Even his servants say, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. Okay, a few weeks ago when I was touching on this, somebody made some comment, I can't wait to hear about your thoughts on music therapy. And that, I hadn't even thought about that, but that was, that was great. That, that really gave me something to think about. So he's going to play. He's a skillful player on the harp. And he goes on to say, And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you. And that's the word al, which means outside of. We'll look at it in a minute. And you shall be well. Then in verse 23, we see the solution. And so it was whenever the spirit from God, that's that evil spirit that came from God, was upon Saul, that's the word all, 
outside, not inside. It's not b, which is the preposition for in, was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Notice whenever this happened, this is just didn't happen once or twice. This happens regularly. He's got a real problem. Saul has a fragmented soul, and he's in extreme paranoia, and he constantly has to give get relief. Well, what that tells us is the music therapy only alleviates the symptoms for a short time, okay? The playing of music uh, only t- t- uh, has a short duration in terms of relief. We're told then when the, he would do this, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. And that's that word all, meaning from over or above him. It's not in him. So we're not talking demon possession. We're talking an external uh, vantage point. So I worked my way through this this afternoon and said, I've got to have a good visual for this. So we're going to start off just thinking about the makeup of every human being. We've got a brain. Inside of uh, most of our heads, there's few people you wonder about on occasion, and they appear a little brainless and vacuous, but we all putatively have a brain. And that brain is a material thing. But inside that brain is a soul. That soul is immaterial. And if you can explain how a ghost runs the physical machine, you are more knowledgeable than anyone else in human history. How does a material body and brain get run by a immaterial soul? How does it connect? How is it secured? How is it held together? We don't know. Now, there's another thing that has to be understood here in the makeup of a person. And that's this, the sin nature. It inflames the soul. And when that sin nature is not controlled, then the sin nature controls all of the components of the soul. And the more the sin nature is allowed free reign, especially in the areas of uh, weakness And in sin, the more destructive that the soul is, that it is to the soul, the more destructive it is to the soul, to the thinking of the person, to their conscience, to their self-consciousness, and it's also going to impact their emotions. Now, there's another thing that we have to add to this, because at this point, this is a picture of an unbeliever. We're going to add the human spirit. That is, shows that this is a regenerate person, and I believe Saul was regenerate. Saul is regenerate, but he still has that nasty sin nature that is fragmenting his soul because he's relying upon that and not on the Word of God. So if we think about this a little bit in terms of the spiritual progress and deterioration, the first thing that we see is that negative volition gives the sin nature control. When we choose to operate on the sin nature, we're choosing to make that decision, and we're letting the sin nature control. And the more the sin nature controls, the more it fragments and tears up our soul. But who's making the choice? Who's responsible? We're responsible. 
It's not some external influence. Now, there may be influences from peers and professors and the world system and all of these other things, but we choose what we're going to respond to, and we choose what we're going to apply and what we're going to think about. The more we reside in the power of the sin nature, the more destructive that that is going to be until we are a backslider and until we are at a point where God is going to pull back the restraints and let us just free fall into self-destruction spiritually, and that's part of divine discipline. So the next thing that happens is the sin nature creates emotional control. There's... um, One term that was uh, coined for this is the emotional revolt of the soul. But there's a a little problem with that. I I like it. But a little problem with that is it indicates that the emotion is always controlling the soul. But the emotion may be the original control, but it changes the thinking. Because the unbeliever is going to generate a lot of thought that's consistent with his false views. He's going to have a lot of... So you can, what I mean is you can have somebody who's an intellectual that's, in, that's not apparently emotional. They're still in emotional revolt, okay? Because that's what's ultimately generating. And what's the emotion? What do you think the emotion is? Hatred toward God. That's the emotion that is generating everything. It's a hostility, an antagonism, a hatred toward God. Remember, I've taught that in in worldliness, you're imitating the thinking of Satan. And you have two basic broad ways in which that's manifested. One is is this sort of um, uh, antagonism towards God, this hatred toward God. But the other is arrogance. Those two A's, the antagonism or the hatred towards God and, and arrogance. And so this is what we see in Saul. We've seen his arrogance almost from the beginning. And he becomes more and more hostile to God until God just gives him over. That's that verb. That's that process that that's uh, indicated in Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to. And each of those steps is further deterioration because they have replaced God suppressed righteousness and replaced him with the worship of the creature rather than the worship of the creator. And that's what Saul did. He is, it, Remember, re, um, uh, rebelliousness is like the sin of... In, of uh, rebelliousness is like the sin of divination and insubordination is, is like the sin of idolatry. And that's what this is. You get so immersed in idolatry where you're worshiping the the things of the world, the details of life, that eventually it destroys your soul. After you've gone through this process that's all generated by your own volition, all of this was generated by Saul's volition, then you get to a super level of divine discipline that only a few people have experienced in history. So it may not be us. And that's demon oppression. This is the only example like this that we have in Scripture. And this demonic oppression on Saul increases the fragmentation of his soul until he is almost incapable of functioning. So then what happens? There's a temporary alleviation of the problem. Music. 
Music doesn't provide a, per, a, a permanent solution. It provides temporary relief through structure and meaning. Okay, that's what music is. Music is structured, it has meaning, unless, of course, you're listening to John Cage or Def Leppard or Kiss or somebody like that. Okay, there's structure and meaning, and that, when it's listened to, helps the apparently helped Saul's thinking to be structured and to have relief from what was going on. Now, if you want to get an in-depth analysis of music and and um, worldview and all of that, again, I recommend those studies I did back in the, in Revelation series series on worship and music, or the uh, three lessons that uh, Scott Annual had in uh, and uh, the conference in 2013, and his book. Also, you can get on the internet uh, worship in song. Excellent. Too many Christians have been deceived by the devil and to think that music is neutral. Music is not neutral. Music, all music communicates something by its form and structure. And you're either communicating something that is consistent with a biblical worldview or derives from a biblical worldview or you're not. And most music that's used in churches today doesn't. So you've got the devil's music and it's not rock, and it's not syncopation, and it's not any of these things that a lot of people have said it was. It's just the structure of the, of the music. So what happens is this, this provides temporary, temporary relief. And there goes the demon. He's out of there. Now, something new has developed over the last few years. There's a lot of debate over this, even in, in uh, academics, as to how valid this is. It used to be one of those Mickey Mouse courses about 30 or 40 years ago, and it's called music therapy. It is a branch of psychotherapy, and so under point one, I wanted to define it for you. It's called um, uh, the, um, excuse me, the, the uh, uh, Music Association defines music therapy as the clinical and evidence-based use of music interventions to accomplish individualized goals within a therapeutic relationship. That's the key word. Uh, therapeutic relationship by a credentialed professional who has completed an approved music therapy program. Now, there's a lot of debate as to just what that is. And, and this is something that, that we ought to understand because under point two, there is something that happens when music is played for patients who have dementia. You can start singing a hymn and they will remember it and sing it with you. Or you can sing a Bible verse uh, that they've learned that tune and they will sing it with you. But if you ask them to say the verse with you, they can't do it. They don't remember it. Music works in another part of the brain than the memory. So we know that music has an impact, that people who have, uh, who are struggling with, with uh, uh, for example, anxiety, paranoia, that music has an impact in calming them down. But there's nobody's got any data on it. Uh, this is a really underfunded, under research area, according to my, my research. There are a lot of people who jump to a lot of uh, overblown conclusions as to what it can do. We know it does something, but nobody knows why or how it works. But it does do something. But a lot of it is mixed up with a lot of psychotherapy, mumbo-jumbo, juju black magic, and it just uh, uh, doesn't have any, any... That doesn't have any biblical base. So... Um, one 
idea is that it just helps the, uh, I didn't finish the point or didn't need to forget the last two words. One factor may be that it helps an emotionally fragmented mind organize itself and settle down for a temporary period. That seems to be what's going on uh, with Saul, but it's not a permanent solution. It's just like all the other quick fix solutions we have for people who are facing depression and anxiety and all these other things that we have in our culture for which they're being over-medicated and over-medicated and over-medicated. The medication has a temporary quick fix, but it doesn't solve the problem because the problem is the sin nature. The problem is a spiritual problem. If it's not addressed with the Word of God, if it's not addressed with the spiritual skills, if you're not confessing sin, and if you're not turning to the Word of God to cleanse you further from your sin by uh, refreshing and rebooting your mind with the truth of God's Word, renewing your mind, Romans 12.2, then it's not going to work. And the quick-fix solutions of human viewpoint are just that. They are just nothing more than a panacea, and it doesn't solve the problem. We have to address it spiritually. And so I think this, this chart explains what's going on and what can happen to many believers is they are under some kind of serious fragmentation of the soul due to years of carnality, years of not really trusting the Word, years of not really understanding the Word, deceiving themselves. Uh, This happens with a lot of people. Now, if you're in a tough situation, you're going through anxiety, you're going through depression, that doesn't necessarily mean that's, that's that's the cause in your case. It is for some people. You look at your life and you haven't been confessing sin and you have been living in a lot of sin for a long time, then this might fit you. But if you haven't been, then don't put yourself under a pseudo-guilt complex and say, well, golly, I've just been a horrible sinner for years and I haven't used any doctrine. Um, We all go through different tests. We all fail. But the solution is the Word of God. There's always hope. And God can solve it. And if you're going through depression, I've known, I know that, that can be just the area of weakness in some people's sin nature, that they trend towards fear, they trend towards worry, they trend towards depression. So you have to memorize scripture that relates and targets those areas in your sin nature and constantly claim those promises to re, um, just reformat your brain into thinking in terms of the word and not in terms of of your own weaks in nature. So Saul only gets a temporary fix. Every time that uh, David takes down the harp, he's temporarily refreshed, and then the spirit departs, and then it comes back, and he just goes back and forth, and there's no solution because he doesn't turn to the word of God. Our hope, our only hope, is the word of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this and to learn the dynamics of the negative side and what happens when we just live on the basis of our sin nature and let it it control us over and over again and we just rebel against you and turn away from you and reject your grace solution. Father, challenge us to turn to you, to hold on to your word, to grasp at your throne of grace, holding on to every precious promise that we can see our minds Uh, renewed and refreshed and our lives transformed by the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.